Technology is also enslaving us. And this is the moment for us to take our power back, put technology in its place, and make it very clear that we are the masters and technology is an instrument. That's Ariana Huffington's call to action during a talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival titled Retweeting, Regramming, and Reimagining Our Relationship with Technology. The founder and editor-in-chief of Huffington Post says more and more people are becoming addicted to technology, and we often take better care of our smartphones than ourselves. She adds the architecture of how we live our lives is badly in need of renovation and repair. This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Huffington's list of accomplishments is long. She's on Forbes' Most Powerful Women list, Time Magazine named her one of the world's most influential people, and her book, Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder, debuted as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. The book opens with her collapsing from exhaustion two years after launching the Huffington Post. But if you had asked me that morning, how are you, Ariana? I would have said fine. Because being chronically tired and chronically burnt out has become the norm. And technology has a huge influence in that. In this talk, Huffington lays out how technology is affecting our well-being and even our safety. She points to solutions like digital detoxes and policies some workplaces are calling email holidays. She picks on audience members to chime in, so the talk is a conversation. Here's Huffington with her opening remarks. What I love about it is that I have a certain amount of street cred when it comes to technology, because the Huffington Post would not exist were it not for technology. So I am fully aware of all the incredible ways in which technology has liberated us, empowered us, given voice to millions of people around the world who would not have a voice before. But I'm also acutely aware, maybe because I I am in a 24-7 technology-driven media industry, that technology is also enslaving us, and that this is the moment for us to take our power back, put technology in its place, and make it very clear that we are the masters and technology is an instrument. Because increasingly, more and more people are becoming addicted to technology. And I don't use that word loosely. Uh, I use that word deliberately. We actually take better care of our smartphones than we take care of ourselves. I think everybody in this room knows approximately right now how much battery remains on your smartphone. (laughs) But how many of us know how much battery we are left with? Those of you who've read Thrive, my last book, know that I start the book with this dramatic scene of my collapsing from exhaustion, burnout, sleep deprivation, uh, hitting my head on my desk, breaking my cheekbone. But if you had asked me that morning, How are you, Ariana? I would have said fine. Because being chronically tired and chronically burnt out has become the norm. And technology has a huge influence in that. I've been doing an informal poll here in Aspen about how many people sleep with their smartphones. And the number is stunning. I won't won't out them, 
because they taught me in confidence, and many of them are per incredibly brilliant people who are perfectly aware that this is not the right way to sleep, uh, who are perfectly aware even of the science, the amazing amount of new scientific findings that talk about the importance of sleep without any devices around us. And yet, they are now addicted. Well, of course, we can break addictions. Um, millions have broken drug addictions, alcohol addictions, sex addictions. It's time to break the technology addiction. And uh, Jay Winston, who is here from Harvard, has done incredibly wo incredible work on distracted driving. We have partnered together with the Huffington Post to expose the dangers of distracted driving. Uh, it's now just after drunken driving in terms of deaths and accidents. So from every aspect of our lives, our life literally in terms of our um, death, life and death, which is what checking your um, smartphone while you are driving really means, either for you or for others on the road, to our health, because if we don't properly recharge through sleep, through renewal time, um, we actually directly impact our health, and the science about that is incontrovertible. And through our wisdom, I'm really interested in that, because we all know that wisdom and creativity are not functions of how many emails and texts we respond to. That's why people talk so often about having their best ideas in the shower. I'm terrified that the new Apple Watch is going to become waterproof. <laughs> and that will be the end of good ideas in the shower. I mean, there are some watches that are waterproof. There are some Androids there are, but it's still not prevalent. I mean, most of us here do not have waterproof watches um, or waterproof smartphones. But when that happens, I mean, it's going to have a direct impact on our creativity. The most creative people we know have talked about the need to disconnect from our technology and connect with ourselves. Steve Jobs famously said, that his best ideas came after Zen meditation, when he said, I was disconnected from all the distractions and I could hear subtler things. We all know we have that place in us, that place of wisdom and strength and resilience and peace. Nobody is there all the time, but technology makes it harder to be there more of the time. People are beginning to take measures in New York right now, for example, there's a very popular game called the phone stacking game. Um, when people are having dinner, like, like a round table like that in a restaurant, they put all their phones in the middle of the table and the person who reaches for their phone first pays the bill. <laughs> there, there are parents everywhere I mean, every parent is concerned about the impact smartphones and technology is having on their children. But often, we tell them, get off your phone, but they see us surreptitiously checking our texts under the table. So they're beginning to... <laughs> Leo's son is uh, applauding. Does that mean that your dad does that? Hey, we have to talk about that. Thank you for outing him. <laughs> 
Can you blog about it on the Huffington Post? That will go very viral. <laughs> so the point now is that parents realize that they have to deal with that and have a transition when they come home from work so that they can maybe even take five minutes to just really put their work life behind them. Some people have places in their homes when they walk in, they literally store their smartphone. And then they can be with their child, whether it's having a meal or helping them with their homework, without that constant distraction of the phone. It is so essential because we know that nothing important happens when we are multitasking. Indeed, multitasking has now been proven to be a complete delusion. It does not exist. It is task switching. It is the most stressful thing we can do. And far from making us productive, it makes us completely blind to the world around us. I, I mean, incidentally, I have done everything that I'm describing here. You know, I'm the ultimate culprit. I'm not, I'm not speaking from anything except complete experience. When I stopped walking the streets of New York and either being on the phone, as most New Yorkers are doing, or worse, texting while walking, and I started noticing things that I had literally never noticed before. I remember walking with a friend near my apartment, I live in Soho, and seeing this beautiful building near my apartment. I said to my friend, this building is gorgeous. When did it go up? And she said, 1890. <laughs> so what else are we missing when we are not really present in our lives? Linda Stone has come up with this term, continuous partial attention. And that can really describe modern life. And there is one quote that I love by Eric Barker, who said, those who can sit in a chair, undistracted for hours, mastering subjects and creating things will rule the world. While the rest of us frantically try to keep up with texts, tweets, and other incessant interruptions. And none of what I'm saying is against all the ways in which the smartphone makes life easier, all our devices make life easier. It's really about recognizing the need to unplug and recharge and reconnect with ourselves, and that includes having digital detoxes. Last Christmas, for example, when I was in Hawaii with my children, I decided to take a week off all my social media. And it was really amazing to recognize that I could have a meal without Instagramming it that I could watch a sunset without putting it on my Facebook wall. It was just a complete revelation. And that I could instead be completely present with myself, with my daughters, we had some of the best times because there wasn't that other thing fighting for my attention. And what we see in colleges, my two daughters just recently graduated, is that it's really dominating college life, and the addiction to technology is dramatically increasing stress in colleges. We see this epidemic of binge drinking, drugs, suicides. If we don't teach ourselves and our children to connect with ourselves in that centered place of wisdom and peace, life is just too overwhelming and too chaotic and moving too fast, and it's moving faster and faster. 
So it's more and more imperative to connect with that place. And every spiritual teacher, every philosopher has talked about that. This is nothing new. What is happening now is that modern science is validating ancient wisdom. We have these unprecedented scientific findings now. There are 2,500 sleep centers, for example, writing about the importance of sleep, the connection of sleep deprivation to disease, including Alzheimer's, amazing new findings about Alzheimer's and sleep deprivation. And also the importance of not having the lighting that comes from the screens. One of the reasons why so many people are having trouble sleeping or they wake up after they fall asleep is because we don't do a transition from our day lives to our sleep time. You know how when you put babies to sleep, you don't just plonk them down. You put them in their pajamas, you lower the lights, you read them a story, you play nice music. Who does that to themselves? We need to start doing the same for ourselves. We need to create our own ritual. Mine is very simple. 30 minutes before I'm going to turn off the lights, I take all my devices and gently escort them out of my bedroom. <laughs> it's scary at first, but you know, they're always there in the morning, fully recharged, and so am I. And uh, I, have a, I have a very hot bath, and it's almost like a ritual. It's like a purification ritual. The day is gone. You know, with all his good things and his challenges, like all of our days, they are filled with both. And now is the time to restore myself and reconnect with some mystery. You know, I love remembering my dreams, which I never used to do when I was perpetually sleep deprived. And by my bedside table, I only have real books. Remember the ones that you have to turn the pages? <laughs> and underline them, and the books have nothing to do with work. They're about poetry, philosophy, things that can help restore and recharge me and reconnect me with our own universal wisdom. So this is a kind of amazing time that we are living through. When we are at this turning point of recognizing that with all these incredible glories, technology is now becoming a danger. And we need to address it individually. We need to address it in schools. We need to address it in offices. At the Huffington Post, for example, we have introduced policies where everybody knows that when they finish work, they are not expected to be on email. If there is something urgent, we'll text them or call them. It is not sustainable to be always expected to be on. People need to learn to organize teams differently. More and more businesses are in multiple time zones with somebody having to be on all the time. It just doesn't have to be the same person. And also, we just introduced last Friday a holiday email policy that I love, that I found from Daimler, because I collect what companies are doing around the world. And ironically, Germany, which is one of the most successful modern economies, has pioneered some of these things. So Daimler introduced this holiday email policy, as they call it, where anybody can opt in, any employee, and basically, instead of getting, if somebody sends them an email, instead of getting the usual out-of-office email, which is useless, because five minutes later, you get an email from the person, <laughs> right? Because w once you see the email, we are addicted to respond. 
Instead, you get an email that says, Linda is on vacation. If this is urgent, please contact George. If it is not, please email her in two weeks. This email will be deleted. Don't you love that? It's a little scary, but don't you love it? I'm taking my vacation. I'm going to the Greek islands with my daughters and my ex-husband. That's another story. I'll tell you about it. Um, at the end of July, and I'm putting that on for the first time in my life, I'm not going to respond to emails. And it's an incredibly liberating feeling. And everybody who's done it talks about how they come back reconnected with themselves in a deeper and profounder way. And as a result, they're going to be better at their jobs. Because everybody here is in a job which is not about their stamina, but about their judgment, and their good ideas, and their creativity. And these are the very things that are impaired when we are operating from the shallows. You know, David Lynch has this great quote about, if you want to catch big fish, you know, you got to go deeper. In the shallows, it's all the small fish. So if you want to come up with big ideas, if you want to be truly creative, if you want to come up with game-changing things, with leaps of imagination, it's not going to happen while you're texting, trust me. I know that because it's never happened to me. And a lot of the people we admire have instituted policies like that, and finally they are coming out and talking about it. Like um, the CTO of, um, of Cisco, Padma Warrior, who oversees tens of thousands of engineers, and she tells everyone that she sleeps for eight hours, she meditates, she does haikus, and every Saturday she does a digital detox. Now, and I tell everybody, if a woman who oversees tens of thousands of engineers can go on a digital detox once a week, surely so can I and so can all of us. And if you think of it, the metaphor of the creation of the earth is very significant here. You know, God worked really hard for six days and created heaven and earth. That was pretty awesome, right? And then he took the seventh day off. <laughs> right, clearly he didn't have to. I mean, the guy is off, or the girl is all powerful, all present, etc. This was This was for us. This was a metaphor for us. And I love that metaphor. Because just to wrap things up before we open it up to what I'm most interested in, which is our discussion. If we're lucky, we really have 30,000 days to play the game of life. Because as the Onion headline put it, death rate holds steady at 100%. <laughs> and how we play the game depends on what we value. And if we only playing the game in the shallows and remain disconnected from the depths of who we are, we are going to miss out on what is the essence of life. I was recently um, at the funeral of Jimmy Lee, who died unexpectedly at 62. He was the head of M&A at JP Morgan. He had been involved in every big deal, whether it was the Facebook IPO or Alibaba or you name it, he did it. Nobody at his funeral, not even Jamie Dimon, the head of JP Morgan, mentioned any of that. They mentioned that his face lit up when he saw his children. I'm going to cry now. 
But, you know, it's like an incredible moment to realize that all that stuff in the final hour doesn't really matter. And while we are all engaged in important things, it's important to remember that leaving some time to really reconnect with, the, with what matters is transformational in terms of our lives and in terms of the meaning that we derive from our lives. Thank you so much. So, um, Leon, do you mind if I come to you first? If we can give Leon um, a, a, a mic. Because Leon Weaseltier is a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow in culture and policy at the Brookings Institution. He has written essays on technology and culture. Um, I want to say first that I agree with, I mean, everything my beloved friend Ariana just said is golden, every syllable. Um, though I do want to say that if you're going on holiday with an ex-husband, I won't <laughs> hold it against you if I get an email. <laughs> I just want to be, one has to practice forgiveness. So it's just, um, I think it, one useful way to, to, to uh, a context, or as they like to say around here, a frame within which to think of what Ariana was saying, is to think of it in terms of the periods through which we're living. We have lived through a period of revolution. There's no question about it. When you study the history of revolutions, one of the things, there are a couple of characteristics that you notice. The first is, that the people who make revolutions, revolutionaries, those who perpetuate it, would like you to believe that the revolution is permanent. Um, Leon Trotsky believed that the revolution was permanent, mm -hmm. and Google believes that the revolution is permanent. In Google's case, there's a, they have a lot of money at stake in the idea that we will believe that the revolution is permanent. In fact, it's very likely that the revolutionary period in some way is coming to an end in the sense that the, the, the digitization of things has occurred, it's being routinized, we've all got the whole universe in our pockets, uh, and so on. We've all dis displayed the behavior that Ariana so eloquently and f comically described. Um, and it's important to recognize that, e that, that real critical thinking begins the morning after the revolution. That is to say, once the drunkenness is over and the inebriation is over and the giddiness is over and the spectacular fortunes have been made and everybody's jaw has dropped about the size of the money and all, once all this is once everyone's been been addled by it, that's when critical thinking about revolution always begins in the morning after. This is true of all revolutions, and I think that there is a sense in which we're beginning to live in the morning after. Um, when these devices first appeared, when the technology appeared, there were early people who thought critically about aspects of them, mainly the legal people, the lawyers, got, they seized on the problem of copyright, they seized on the problem of privacy. It was only later that we began to realize that those are real problems, but that the technology, the challenges and the influences of the technology are much deeper than that. That the technology affects consciousness and it affects cognition, and it affects the soul, and it affects human relationships. It will redefine friendship and love. It is, dis it is the gr most sustained attack on human attention ever devised. Um, and when now, now is the time when we're beginning to realize this, and philosophers and moral thinkers and psychologists and not just lawyers and investment bankers are beginning to think actually about the meaning of all these things. And so that's the good news, is that we are, I mean, your thoughts about this, these are all, these are all very positive um, indications that we're, we're, we're learning to keep our heads a little bit. The second thing that you 
discover when you study revolutions is that all revolutions exaggerate. They cannot accomplish anything unless they believe they can accomplish everything. So all revolutions believe that they're creating a new beginning. And one of the great uh, myths, one of the great platitudes, one of the great ideological stratagems of Silicon Valley has been to make you believe that everything is now going to start afresh. Nobody's ever cooked spaghetti until Bill Gates cooked spaghetti. And once he cooked spaghetti, it turns out that we, were, we lucked out intuitively. We were right in thinking that you have to boil water. But now we really know that you have to boil water. Um, and I think that the, the exaggerations of revolutions, you know, with the French Revolution, uh, not long after Napoleon, along came de Tocqueville, who pointed out that the revolution was not as complete as people thought, that there were significant continuities in French society, that a lot survived, that, we, that, that France was not transformed into something entirely new and different. And one of the things that we have to seize on as standpoints for the kind of cultural resistance that you're describing is to identify those continuities from the old world into the new and to use them as a basis for trying to reject and uh, those, those influences that we find not salutary. For example, there is nothing that any of this technology can do, and I don't care what Ray Kurzweil says till he's blue in the face, there's nothing that any of this can do about physical reality. Physical reality is unaffected by my iPhone. Uh, my body, those trees, those mountains, your bodies, the experience of physical life, the experience of artistic creation, etc., etc., sports, uh, all of this, all of this keeps us honest, keeps us ontologically and metaphysically honest. Um, well, one of the things that's happened is an interesting scientific study from Harvard and UVA is that people have, are gradually having a harder and harder time being completely alone. Yeah. Like without devices or TV or some kind of distraction. They did that amazing study where they asked people to choose whether they would prefer to be completely alone in a room for 15 minutes without any distractions or get electric shock. <laughs> and 67% of men chose electric shock. The wiser sex women, only 25% chose electric right. and shock. And there's now an app for electric shock, <laughs> right? Yes. So, you know, that's... That's really that's right. kind of how far things have gotten, and that's why remembering the continuities from the past that we value and reintroducing them into our lives, and, and one of those continuities is time alone, time to be silent. Again. Well, there are, there are certain concepts that we now as a society have to begin to look critically at. One of them, I could just think of two off the top of my head. The f one would be convenience, and the other would be connectivity. I mean, you know, in, in the early world, pre all these devices, loneliness was felt to be an insurmountable problem, and the more connection, the better. It now turns out that, lo let's say solitude, because loneliness is, 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 is a version of solitude, but an unpleasant and an unhappy one. It now turns out that what we knew all along is true, that we are individuated. That's the most primary fact about us, that I am not you and you are not me. And we each have our own souls or selves or call them whatever you want. And that being connected may not be 
the most, the single most important thing we need. In fact, quite the contrary. We, even before the technology, we, we are born so embedded and so connected into so many contexts and frameworks, social, cultural, familial, psychological, religious, political, we are, we are, we are born into so many webs that the real achievement may be actually learning how to disentangle ourselves from some of them. So let's go and take some questions about any of these things, anything I said, uh, anything that you've been thinking about, because it's, it's really important to bring you in and we only have 20 minutes left. So who has the first question? My name's Steve Buffon. I have a day job, but I'm also the chairman of the board of dosomething.org. You used to be oh. on our board years ago. Thank you for Amazing that. Amazing organization. But, um, thank you. Um, you. I think you have a much tougher job ahead of you than I'm sure you do, do realize it, but what strikes me is the extent to which people are now living their lives through their devices. Um, when you go to a concert, when mm -hmm. you see the president walking through a receiving line, you see the Pope, people are taking photos, trying to get in a selfie. You stand at a concert, you can't see the artist because people are taking a grainy, horrible, you know, <laughs> movie that they'll never watch. <laughs> but they're not experiencing, direct, experiencing these moments directly. And I think that's another, you know, in addition to the distraction, distraction factor of the phone, uh, of, the, of the smartphones, just the extent to which we're literally living our lives through these devices. I, I think it, you're absolutely right about that. Um, but I also feel that because of everybody in the room, in some way or another, has recognized the need for change, um, it can happen faster than we think. And because none of us are Luddites, nobody's talking about giving up our smartphones, just putting them in their place. And among millennials, there is actually a, a counterculture. Uh, my daughter, I mean, I have two daughters. One of them has a minimal Instagram account and nothing else. The other one is completely off social media. And if you text her, she may respond to you in five hours when she checks her phone again. And a lot of her friends are like that. And that partly, I think, is a reaction to having me as her mother. You know, it's like her, her revolt was, to, first of all, to be against blogging, and then to be against social media. Um, but I also feel that uh, millennials, in the same way that so many of them are involved in do something, because they want their life to be about something larger than their paycheck and their title, uh, millennials, I'm very optimistic, are also going to make a difference here. My name is Courtney Rajan with the Committee to Protect Journalists, and thank you also for serving on our board. But I think that maybe this is getting at the question too late in the game. I don't know that it's about the devices, because now technology is so integrated into every aspect of our life, and it is already affecting our social structures and our social you know, communications. And I think it's interesting if you look at the millennials, because they're developing social practices that don't require that they be on their devices. So maybe instead of talking about us needing to leave our device alone, it's more about creating you know, corporate practices and business practices and social practices that don't require that we be on our phones. I think it's a bit of everything. I think our relationship with our devices is absolutely important. I mean, I, for example, am not buying an iWatch, an Apple Watch. The reason for that is that I don't want to have these constant notifications, and I don't want it to be so incredibly constant and easy to look at emails and texts. And especially when you read some of the statistics, 
You know that apparently 20% of people use their smartphones during sex. Now, I don't, I don't exactly know what that means. Maybe I have not read the instructions on my smartphone carefully enough. But imagine, imagine how much easier it would be if your smartphone was your Apple Watch. Absolutely, no problem at all. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, at the same time, you're absolutely right. There have to be dramatic shifts in, in corporate uh, policies, in the corporate expectations. And that's beginning to happen. Let me tell you another positive story because I want you all to leave feeling that this is a winnable battle. Um, I was in London recently um, promoting Thrive and two young women whose first job was at McKinsey, um, clear, uh, the financial sector is supposed to be the sort of boiler room of burnout, uh, were telling me how they had just come down from Oxford, gone to McKinsey, and they went to their boss and they said, we're going to work really hard, we'll do a great job, but we are off during the weekends. Here are cell phones, if you need us, you can reach us. Now that could, have seen, could, could be seen as something kind of really risky. Um, instead, what happens is that three months later, their boss's boss came to them and said, you've been identified as leaders in this company. Because not only are you doing a great job, but you have the leadership and the initiative to set boundaries for yourself that make you more effective. Now, I think if they had done that five years ago, the listening, the cultural listening would not be there to get that reaction. But now, the conversation we are having here is part of the Harvard Business Review conversation, is part of the Wall Street Journal conversation, is part of the Economist conversation. It's not confined to the Aspen Ideas Festival or to philosophy salons. So because of that shift and because employers have seen the price that they are paying, the bottom line price because of burnout, because of what they call absenteeism or presenteeism, or people being at their desk but not really making good decisions. All that has created a new kind of listening. So what we are seeing is that there are changes being happening at the top of corporations, changes coming from the bottom, and of course we still have an enormously long way to go. I think your comments are right on, and I appreciate it, but I've been to about six different sessions at this conference where the pace of K-12 education and college education is going to the computer, to the smartphone, we're delivering the content, and you, the student, you're being trained at K or one first grade. I heard a first grade mother ask a question in one of these. Uh, what, do I, what do I do to get my kid on this? So we're already training people at, at the age of five or six to go to the device. And um, I want to get your take on that because while we're, we're talking about the top and changing the policies at McKinsey or anywhere else, there's an enormous amount of capital and resources and intellectual process trying to routinize education or even the social life of people as, as, as little as four or five years old to the device. I'd like to get your take on that. You're absolutely right. You know, we addressed what's happening in corporate America or corporations around the world. What's happening in education is absolutely critical because it's so important. 
at the same time that we teach children to go to their devices and get their homework done there, to teach them how to be by themselves, to teach them how to navigate emotions, to teach them resilience. That's why this, all this emphasis on coding and technical skills, which is incredibly important, is somehow blinding us to the importance of the humanities in their traditional role, which was to cultivate resilience, to cultivate knowing our place in the world and how we are going to navigate all the emotional ups and downs that happen in any of our lives. And I want to say one more thing, and, um, and then I want to ask Bob to address this, because you have a lot of experience through everything you've done with children. We are finding that the same thing can happen to, the, to two people, and they react completely differently. The, the function of our reactions is how connected are we to our strength and wisdom. Um, the Chicago University did a study of one of the biggest corporate downsizings, for example. And they found out that two-thirds of the people who had been fired fell apart. They became alcoholics, they got depressed. One-third went on and thrived. They actually found resources they didn't know they had. They created their own businesses. They, they, in every way that you could imagine, they did better. So all that is something that we need our children to know from an early age. Because after all, what more than anything, and every one of us who is a parent wants, is for our children to be able to deal with whatever life throws their way. Because we can't protect them from that. And we can't do that simply by teaching them how to use their computers at an early age or teaching them coding skills. Bob? Robert, or Bob Roth, is executive director of the David Lynch Foundation, a charity that brings meditation to underserved youth, veterans, and survivors of domestic violence. Thank you. <clears throat> Just in the last few years, there's been increasing interest in education on the whole theme of learning readiness. We can have wonderful computers, we can have a wonderful teacher-student ratio, but what are we doing to prepare, as you were saying, the, the student to actually learn, to actually absorb information, to actually digest it? And there is not going to be a decrease in the, in, in the intensity of knowledge explosion, but we can help children navigate by giving them tools to promote learning readiness. And what Ariana is also a big supporter of the David Lynch Foundation. In the last few years, we've been providing meditation to now half a million inner city school kids and now also working with you know, wealthier school districts. And the meditation is very powerful because first thing in the morning, a teacher wants to teach algebra. Who knows what that child has eaten? Who knows how much sleep that, that child has gotten? Who knows anything? So the school day starts with 10 minutes of quiet time. And the whole school is quiet. And the children can meditate, they could nap, they could do anything. But that 10 minutes, according to an enormous amount of research now, is transforming the schools. Children, grades go up, um, test scores go up, suspensions and expulsions go, go down, there are a lot of data. And then they do it again at the end of the school day before they go home. So that, the demand for that now of adding the, the notion of learning readiness, waking up the brain, and allowing a child to somehow metabolize and grow in resilience is a huge trend now in education. And what is interesting is that a lot of the people you you may want to talk to in Silicon Valley, some of whom invented a lot of these technologies, are making sure that their children know how to disconnect from them. Uh, there is a school in San Francisco where a lot of them send their kids. 
They teach the children to meditate. As you enter the school, it has this, it's a kindergarten school, it has that sign on top that says, center before you enter. And they teach children the centering skills. So what is interesting is that the people who invented modern technologies and social media know that their intention was to consume as much of our attention in our, in our life as possible. This is not a bug of the system, it's a feature. What do you think likes are for? You know, the idea that somehow we all become addicted how many likes our Instagrams get. When in fact it's the simplest thing in the world, you know, somebody takes like less than a second to like something, and yet we collect them like a badge of honor. That was something that directly appeals to a kind of very um, intrinsic response in us. To be liked, to be approved, and that can become all-consuming in a dangerous way. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Dubai. I am a student from Dubai. And I just wanted to share an insight about what I think social media has done to our part of the world um, and would like to hear your take on it. So, um, you know, when you say the Middle East or when you talk about the Arab world, unfortunately the first thing that comes to an average person's mind is the chaos, the destruction, and all the negativities that come along with it. And as a young Arab, as a young Muslim, that angers me because I look at my country, you know, which is in the middle of that chaos, in the middle of that construction, uh, not construction, um, destruction. Um, and, and a lot of construction. And a lot of construction, <laughs> especially in Dubai. Um, and it angers me because I feel like, you know, that's not what I see in my country. That's not the narrative that I see in my country that provides religious tolerance, that has gender equality. And I think that's what social media has given us. It's given us the sort of platform to provide a counter narrative to what, you know, the misconceptions are. So I'd like to your take on the social media's, social media's role on providing a counter narrative. Absolutely. And I only spent a couple of minutes at the beginning praising modern technologies, but I can spend hours because, of course, they've given voice to many people in the Middle East and around the world who wouldn't have had a voice before. They've made uh, connecting with others so much easier, especially in, in totalitarian countries. I mean, the benefits have been enormous. We are, we are, this session is specifically about the dangers, but we could have endless sessions about the benefits. But I would love to invite you to write about what your experience of social media. And as um, Jay knows, and Jay, I, I would love you to say something about what you've done around distracted driving and, and how powerful our collaboration has been with so many people blogging about their experiences with distracted driving. Jay Winston directs the Center for Health Communication at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's written a series of articles for the Huffington Post on distracted driving. Thank you, Ariana. Um, you know, before I kind of go through all that, this conversation just now has prompted an idea that we, if we can begin to think about the front seat of the automobile as an environment, as a setting where one can pause for th not 10 minutes, but perhaps 30 seconds and remember where we are, remember that there are others on the road besides us, that the people who were online with us at Starbucks who we were talking with were now in danger of doing them harm uh, if, if, if we're not careful, and to pause before we begin to drive in order to kind of remember where we are and what's at stake. And it's the kind of thing that actually could be written in to many sitcoms 
and other shows. And late night comedians could have a ball with it as well. And that, so you and I ought to go to Hollywood together on this sometime <laughs> soon. Okay, uh, dear. Be, because the, the reality is, um, imagine on a suburban road, there are two cars uh, on op coming in opposite directions, on opposite sides of the center line. And they're separated from one another by at most five to eight feet. And if they're each going 50 miles an hour, they're closing on each other at a combined speed of 100 miles per hour. Is it okay with you if you're in one of those cars and the driver of the other one happens to be sending a text message at that time? If that driver were to turn the wheel of the steering wheel three degrees towards the center line, he or she will be over that line and can cause a fatal head-on crash. There are such crashes, distracted driving crashes, occurring in the U.S. each day over 1,000 times, and over nine of those crashes result in a fatality. Uh, so that um, the Harvard School of Public Health and Huffington Post have been partnering in an effort to direct public attention to this problem. Public awareness of the problem of distracted driving is sky high, but it's at a very superficial level. It's, it's giving lip service to the problem. There's not a deeper understanding of the nature of the problem that if you're deeply engaged in a phone conversation and you're staring straight ahead, you're not looking down at a cell phone, but you're deeply engaged in an intensive conversation, you're, you, you stop scanning left and right. You develop tunnel vision. You're looking straight ahead. And if somebody, if a bicyclist or a motorcyclist or a pedestrian comes into your peripheral vision because they're moving towards you, you will not notice them. The signal will not be transmitted and processed in your brain. And there's not a high level of awareness of that. So that's what we partnered on and we're trying to do something about. But I think we may have an intervention that could provoke an awful lot of conversation and maybe accomplish something good. Thank you, Jay. And you see how, as Jay said, we are aware of distracted driving. Everybody has heard about that. But how many of us still uh, talk on the phone? Or maybe when the, when the light turns red, we take our phone out and check the, the messages because everybody's so easily bored. You know, we can't just wait. We have to do something at the same time. And I mean, one of the things I did with my daughters when they started driving is we made that absolute pact which they, we wrote it down practically in blood, that the minute they get in the car, their phone gets in their bag and is in the back seat, unreachable. I mean, and I personally find myself, when I'm in LA, I have a, a Prius, a, a little Toyota Prius that costs about $22,000, but I don't drive it. I have a driver driving my Prius. People laugh about it. <laughs> it's Ariana chauffeur driven Prius. And I sit in the front and I can make my calls. But I think if I if you if you can afford it and you're you want to be on your phone, don't drive. It's like I think it's basically um a choice. And we all have choices like that. So my point is that the more aware we are of the dangers, the more we'll make choices that are actually um, more productive, and then that can spread. We, each one of us has to make a decision, and it's not going to be like an overnight thing. Not, everything we're saying here is going to be a journey. 
Um, not, I mean, I'm, I'm a work in progress. I'm not doing any of this perfectly. But I think the minute we become conscious of the need for this journey, um, something changes in our lives. And, and, and I want to thank you all so much for your contributions, especially, obviously, Leon, Bob, and Jay, whom I called on uh, without them having any idea that I was going to make them part of this. Um, but I also want to end with one of my favorite quotes by Ian Thomas, who said, every day, the world will grab you by the hand and tell you this is important and this is important and this is important and you must worry about this and you must worry about that. And you must take your hand back and put it on your heart and say, no, this is important. Thank you. That's Ariana Huffington, founder and editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post and best-selling author. She spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2015. Next week, we'll introduce you to Josh Kaufman, author and quick learner. He picked up how to windsurf, play the ukulele, and program a computer. Each skill was acquired in a month. What we're going to talk about today are a few very simple methods that you can use to speed up the learning process to do what you want to do. And it really doesn't matter what the skill is. It could be something for your work, something for your career. It could be something that you do for fun, uh, something that you've wanted to do for a very long time, but you just haven't gotten around to yet. He shares universal field-tested approaches to effective learning and rapid skill acquisition in adults. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>